One more time. Shalom, shalom, Hevra. Great to be with you. Great to be with you and uh, to think about Zora together. Number six, for those of you who have been here for all six or most of the six of the 39, <laughs> thank you for that gift to me to help me think through this. And um, your comments in the chat and your, um, your uh, thoughts at the end are helping me get clarity as we continue to move forward in learning these malachot together. So the sixth malacha, the sixth malacha is zore or winnowing. Winnowing, which is another step in the agricultural process of removing the chaff from the grain. Winnowing involves using a tool to throw threshed produce into the air so that the wind blows the lighter chaff from the heavier kernels. Similar to the previous malach of dash, this process is about removing food from non-food. Some think it's specifically about using wind for such a process. We'll come back to that. And others suggest that wind is not necessary for an action to come within the scope of Zohre. And so one traditional extension of this malacha uh, would, be would, the, the, would be prohibiting shaking a tablecloth outside to remove food on Shabbat from the tablecloth because you're using the air um, to separate, using the air to separate. Uh, in thinking about how the weekday activity of winnowing is dependent upon the invisible airspace and the air that fills it, we can reflect on the idea that we are all interconnected through our breath. In 2020, we're quite aware of the phrase, I can't breathe, that accompanied the tragic murder of George Floyd and Eric Garner in 2014, a phrase that now represents the work that so many are doing to make up in some way for the tragedy and, and others like it. And as we confront the COVID-19 pandemic, we're aware that we wear masks because we share the air together. Also, with a rising climate change crisis, we see how interconnected our actions are in surviving together in this ecology that's made up in an important part of the air that we all hope remains clean. Here we can reflect on the tragedy of the commons, a theory which originated in an essay in 1833 by British economist William Forster Lloyd. This is a term often used in environmental context with regard to sustainable and development, representing a system in which individuals who all need a shared re resource behave independently according to their own respective self-interests, contrary to the common good of the collective, in a way that depletes or ruins the shared resource, in this case dealing with sheep in the, in the, in the shared grounds. What do we do about the problem of those pushing fiercely for economic growth 
without environmental regulation? What will happen to our shared spaces and resources, our oceans, our rivers, our clean air, if everyone does their own separate ZORE, th throwing whatever pollution they want into our collective airspace? What is this shared airspace anyways? Professor Daniel Matt, a noted scholar of Jewish mysticism, who we've mentioned before, writes, why is the sky blue? A question every child asks. Among the wavelengths of light in the sun spectrum, blue oscillates at the highest frequency and is therefore scattered effectively by molecules of air in our atmosphere. Because the blue light is bouncing off air in all directions, the sky turns blue. To me, he writes, this is more amazing than ancient Mesopotamian and biblical beliefs that the sky is blue because of all the water up there. <laughs> so the divine gift of color, of breathing space, of experiencing the visible and the invisible all at once. Rabbi, Arthur, Rabbi Dr. Arthur Green writes, we are urgently in need of ways to renew our sense of human responsibility for preserving the natural world around us. As we call for less abusive treatment of Earth's resources, for a more reverent protection of air, soil, and water, and for the preservation of species in both plant and animal realm, we need a theological language that will serve as the basis for such a change in human attitude. The age in which we live cries out for a religious language that speaks of the underlying unity of all existence, a unity that is manifest within life's diversity rather than of the struggles of species against species. This unity is that of creation, of the sense that all beings emerge from a single source. Consider this idea from the new Koren Rav Kook prayer book, which addresses how to stand during prayer. How do we stand during prayer? And, and here we'll see a, a radical theology that will emerge. This is not merely a matter of which direction one must face during the Amidah prayer. Rather, a visualization is called for. In one's mind's eye, one must imagine that one is actually facing the temple. This is why, right, and I'm not quoting Rav Kook for a second. This is why we face east in, in traditional prayer um, if we're in America. If you're in a lot, you face north. If you're in China, you face west. You don't always face east. You face towards um, Israel um, or you face, if you're in Israel or, or wherever else, towards the temple area, towards the old city. So Rav's Kook, eminent disciple, Rav Yaakov Moshe Harlap, wrote to his son in America that through meditative prayer, one actually extends the airspace of the land of, uh, of Israel. Here the Hebrew is Avira de Eretz Yisrael. Rather, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov taught that by clapping one's hands through prayer, one is able to purify the contaminated air outside of the land of Israel. And then the air of the place where the Israelite prays is purified and he draws the holy air as in the land of Israel. Now, this radical theology is quite interesting. This might sound like very Zionist-centric, Israel-centric, land-centric, but actually it's the opposite. It's anachronistic to say, but actually this is the Hasidic framework for post-Zionism, right? Post-Zionism, of course, pre-modern pre secular Zionism, but the idea actually that wherever you are, Israel is, right? And here they draw on gematria, on clapping, and the number of um, kind of joints in the hand and how that gematria connects to koach. Koach, because the, the gematria for koach is 28. And so you have these 28 little, I don't know what you call them. They're not limbs or joints. What do you call these kind of each space within your finger? Um, if you count them, there's 12, there's 14 in this hand and 14 in this hand. What do you call these? Someone put it in the chat because I don't know my 
body parts names. <laughs> um, these, um, so there are 14 here and 14 here, that's 28, and 28 is the gematria of koach. And so by using your koach, phalanges, phalanges, thank you, phalanges or ligaments, yeah. Okay, so by, by, um, by putting these together and putting your spiritual energy into this space, you bring Eretz Yisrael to this space. You, you transform the airspace of which you are present. Uh, Post-Zionism, um, such that um, it is not land dependent, it is, it is air dependent, it is, it is spiritually dependent. Our minds determine where we are. As the Baal Shem Tov famously taught, each of us is where our respective minds are. The philosopher Philo, and Philo is so interesting for so many reasons, but um, just historically, because he exists in the first century, um, one of the most fascinating moments of all human history, 20 years before the Common Era, 50 years, until 50 years in the Common Era, um, where there's so much radical change happening within the Jewish people um, and uh, in relationship to other uh, surrounding peoples as well. And of course, this is where Judaism is invented in the first century. I know that might sound heretical to people who think the Bible is the invention or the Torah is the invention of, of Judaism, but really Judaism as we know it as a modern religion, well, not modern, but as a, as a religion as we know it, as, as a creation of the sages in relationship to a prior prophetic and biblical era. So Philo wrote about how reflecting on the air, among many other magnificent wonders, can bring us closer to the creator. He writes over here, who can look upon statues or paintings without thinking at once of a sculptor or a painter? Who can see clothes or ships or houses without getting the idea of a weaver and a shipwright or a house builder? And when one enters a well-ordered city in which the arrangements for civil life are very admirably managed, what else will you suppose but that this city is directed by good rulers? So then one who comes to the truly great city, I believe he's in Egypt, right? And beholds, hills and plains with animals and plants, or mostly in Egypt, the rivers, spring-fed or winter torrents, streaming along, the seas with their expanses, the air with its happily tempered phases, the yearly seasons passing into each other, and then the sun and moon ruling the day and night, and the other heavenly bodies fixed or planetary, and the whole firmament revolving in rhythmic order, must one not naturally or rather necessarily gain the conceptions of the maker and father and ruler also. This is quite typical theological thinking for such a time period. Actually, well, he's certainly avant-garde, <laughs> progressive, if you will, in his theology of the time. But this is, you know, of, at least of, uh, of, med of medieval theology, you know, quite a bit later. Uh, quite typical thinking of thinking of original sources, original sources and, uh, and moving from gratitude for something we experience towards, towards the original source. Meditating on our breath, we might wonder, why does God require humans to breathe in order to live? You could imagine creating such a life, um, such human beings without needing breath. But certainly a divine plan could have fashioned human beings in some other way. It is to remind us, I would suggest, with each breath of the relationship between our inner world and our outer world. Is it to give us the gift of meditation and spiritual attunement with the miraculous experience of life? Perhaps the answer is more clear in our peculiar time than it was in the past. Perhaps we were fashioned in a way that requires us to breathe so that existentially we never forget the interconnectivity of all life. We are one fabric, intricately interwoven. Humans with other humans, with non-human animals, with trees, with air, with water. With each breath, we inhale all the life force around us. 
and all the interconnected life force everywhere from all time. With each exhale, we return the conscious gift of compassionate, of compassionate interconnectivity. Today, many of us wear masks. Hopefully, every one of us who is privileged to be able to spend time in public wears a mask in the interest of keeping us all safe. These masks can remind us of the gift of life, the gift of breath, the gift of the interconnectivity of all life, that we are one, there is only the one. Before we encountered the hyper-challenged world of 2020, some were thinking that we had mastered the ideal form of government with hyper-unregulated capitalism. Some were investing millions in immortality as if we'd wiped out disease and we were ready to conquer death. Some growing ever richer claimed they were invincible and unstoppable and fully in control of their fate. Some laughed that God was dead and the individual was now all-powerful. Some thought that as Americans, we could have literally everything we wanted. To destroy the planet, but be okay. To exploit the poor, but to be okay. To block out immigrants, but still breathe the same air as everyone else on the planet. To live selfishly and privately, but to be safe from the chaos of the world. To exploit, to be safe in our mansions. And, and yet, we've once again been reminded that we must wake up from such delusions. It is hard to know what to reach for in order to feel a sense of security today. But if we reach for anything, it should start with humility. Who in their, um, who, of, by which I mean no one, predicted such an era like this to emerge? We don't have all the answers. None of us is in control. We don't know where we're headed. And humility can lead us to solidarity. Humility can lead us to love. And that can help us work together towards the answers we all need. This gem on healing penned by 13th century poet Rumi, um, also a Sufi mystic and Islamic scholar, touches on our experience of the air. He writes, Lord, the air, the air smells good today. Straight from the mysteries within the inner courts of God, a grace like new clothes thrown across the garden, free medicine for everybody. The trees in the prayer, the birds in praise, the first blue violets kneeling, Whatever came from being is caught up in being, drunkenly forgetting the way back. And so friends, air, the wind can be very dangerous. We know today sharing airspace is very dangerous. We know that both experiencing um, contaminated air or going back to um, George Floyd, the blocking of, of air can be very dangerous. My mother in Chicago um, stepped away from the windows in her apartment yesterday because there was an expected tornado, the power of the wind, of the air in motion. And yet we also reflect on the blessing of the experience of, of air and the blessings of our interconnectivity when we take responsibility for it. And so Zohre, winnowing, our sixth malacha, once again has to do with removing the chaff from the grain in such that, that, that the when we throw the threshed produce into the air, the wind blows the lighter chaff from the heavier kernels. This malacha of Shabbat is about getting us to reflect on the power of wind and air in our own lives as a tool, as a weapon, um, and as a blessing. And so friends, I'm gonna pause there and open up the floor for some thoughts and questions and commentary on Zoreh. Don't forget to unmute yourself. Are they able to unmute themselves?
Andrea? I have a thought that I was just uh, trying to relate the, um, the malaka of, um, of winnowing yeah. to the end result of this, this group of the 11 malakot that ends up with them baking a loaf of bread, right? Challah. <laughs> yes. So it's interesting to see how it all breaks down and all these processes that one has to go through before we uh, arrive at the refined product, you know, mm -hmm. that we're going to make as an offering. So I don't have a conclusion, but I was just kind of looking at my list and trying to um, get an association of the larger issue on the table. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's a great point for us to think about the process of our work, the process of, of, of labors. In fact, it's funny because when we say hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we make the bracha over bread. Um, we say hamotzi lechem in arts, thanking God for taking bread from the earth. It's like almost absurd language. Taking bread from the earth? Like, no, actually, there was a worker who did like countless steps involved. God didn't remove um, bread from the earth. And yet, um, it, it, we, can, we can have um, a, a rich spiritual consciousness in both directions, both this sense that actually however we understand divine role in creation and maintaining creation, that in some sense, the, um, um, the divine just removes bread from the earth and somehow it gets into our grocery store and onto our plate. Or we can have deeper gratitude by thinking through these steps, thinking through these malachot, as you said, the 11 that are connected directly to the agricultural process and to the production of the bread um, can, can once again remind us of, of the dignity of workers, um, and not only of their wages, but the dignity of their work, the, the extensive process that's involved in, in such work, um, that in times we've outsourced to technology, and in other times we can't, or it's not even as effective. So thank you, Andrea, for that. Open, floor is open for someone else. Hi, Rav, Shmuley. Hi, Rav Shmuley. Michael Evers in Cincinnati Hi. here again. Hi, shalom, shalom. Shalom. Um, I have two questions. Great. The first is, what, if at all, does Zoresh have to do with boundaries? Mm. And my second question is kind of like a follow-up slash commentary is, I'm curious about what the similarity in the Hebrew might be between breath and air and spirit thinking about like you know the story in genesis where hashem breathes life into adam and creates him and i'm i'm just thinking about that because it kind of strikes me as you're talking about this idea of interconnectivity mm -hmm. and kind of our awareness now in 2020 is like like we used to say, oh, we have like social media, like we're all connected. Before that, the Jews were like, oh, we play Jewish geography, and we're all connected. But now like we're literally, you know, contact tracing, right? Um, with breath and such. So I'm kind of wondering about that. And if there's like an ethos to kind of be drawn out from here of um, thinking more universally, not in the sense of like, you not like, not in the, like, I guess the better word is thinking more globally, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that I'm doing that is affecting other people, like my hand washing or who I'm with and how close and all this kind of a thing. And I'm just kind of curious how that relates to the boundary question about Zoresh to like flock, kind of just throw it up in the air and see what comes down and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, if that, mm-hmm. if there might be a connection there at all. Okay, love it, love it. Thank you, Michael, for that. Um, so, firstly, on the boundaries issue, it's it's a fascinating point, and one of the things um, we talked about about the threshing floor last week was the halakha that emerges in the Mishnah itself around um, the threshing floor having to be built and only used providing, uh, providing, provided that enough distance has been created, um, that, um, that the boundaries are there from the field workers and from the city passerbys. And I can share that mission again with anyone who's, uh, who's interested, the source there. Um, and so those boundaries are, are, um, are established uh, uh, immediately. And in fact, if you look at OSHA, you look at OSHA and workplace um, protections. I think that's another avenue for us to think about, about um, the proper boundaries being, being put into place. And it's interesting, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, uh, one of the greatest halachists of the 20th century, asked the question about secondhand smoking. Am I, have I done an act of damage by smoking publicly? Um, how do we understand such an indirect form of damage? And actually, the case he looked at was um, a case in the Talmud, <laughs> a case in the Talmud of someone with a cherry tree. And the bird grabs the cherry off one's tree and drops that cherry onto the roof of the neighbor, leaving a red stain. And um, he comes to the conclusion that simply owning your cherry tree, even though you don't own the bird or the bird's will, um, makes you liable for damages of the red stain on the neighbor's roof. This is interesting if you've ever had neighbor conflicts. In fact, uh, one of my neighbors recently asked if we could sweep the leaves from um, uh, um, from her walkway that came over our wall. And it raised an interesting question. Um, and so, he, so Rav Moshe Feinstein extends that case of the birds to secondhand smoking, saying that if you, um, just the, the fact that you're not in control of the airspace, the fact that you have breathed your smoke into, into the airspace uh, and it has entered someone else's lungs makes you liable for damages. Now, he's not talking about like payments necessarily, but on a religious level, you are... Um, you are responsible, and thus it's responsible to have policies in place. Well, number one, he says, for no smoking at all. But secondarily, if there is smoking, uh, that it not be that um, rules are put in place. But actually, here's another interesting case. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's very interesting. Moshe Feinstein is grappling with modernity, and he's looking at the case of um, um, not IVF. Um, uh, oh, sorry, artificial insemination. Not artificial. Uh, what's it called when uh, not artificial insemination? Uh, in, vitro, in vitro, in vitro, yeah, yeah, IV, IVF, IVF, in vitro insemination. Now it's kind of, you don't call it in vitro insemination. What, uh, what do you call the process of of insemination through technology? In vitro fertilization. Okay, okay, yes. So the IVF, but there's an, okay. Thank you, Lauren. There, there's another phrase I'm thinking of in the moment. Hold on, there's an echo. Uh, there it's gone. Okay. Anyways, so um, so let's call it IVF for now. And he says, "Huh? Can you do that?" And he looks at a case in the Talmud where it says over there that um, can a virgin get pregnant? Can a virgin get pregnant? Um, And his answer is, uh, the answer in the Talmud is yes. 
And what happens? A man goes into a bathtub um, and for whatever reason, um, leaves semen in the bathtub. And then a woman takes a bath after him and comes out pregnant. That happens in the Talmud. That case, and he draws on that strange case to say, actually, it is permitted for a virgin to get pregnant. It is permitted to have IVF. Um, because he wants to get to that conclusion, and he, he finds that Talmudic passage to get him there, um, which, which is just an, I, I, it's, it's a huge tangent, but I, I share that just because it's relevant to how he's thinking about um, indirect causation uh, in regards to damages or in regards to, to pregnancy. In any case, going back to your question, Michael, about boundaries um, and the boundaries we think about in this pandemic. Um, are, are just remarkably thought-provoking. And I think we see here emerging from the text itself of how we think about, um, about, about physical boundaries. You know, in, in Jewish tradition, we, um, we often talked about it as yichud and negia. Yichud, um, meaning you shouldn't be alone with someone um, who you might fall into uh, a, an intimate relationship you don't want to be a part of. And negia, thinking about your touch. And so those were two traditional frameworks to think about who do you touch and how do you touch them? Something we need to think about again today in the Me Too movement about inappropriate power touches that are gender-based uh, gender uh, in the workplace. Do we really wanna hug everyone? Do we, is it always appropriate to give a kiss? When is a hand on the shoulder appropriate? And when is it radically inappropriate? Yeah, um, and... Um, Oh, Debbie, thanks for that. Inner uterine insemination. I, I, you, I, uh, I think that was actually what I was thinking, uh, not I, U, I, V, F. Um, and, and yeah, so yichud and negia, and of course, these can be misused as well. Um, but thinking about boundaries today, uh, and, and that's one of the interesting conversations I haven't seen emerge so much in a post, in a post pandemic world. How do we think about new boundaries of touch? and of contact and of space. Now going to your second uh, question there, Michael, about thinking globally and about Adam being created through the power of breath, the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God into us. Um, and I think, you know, it's so interesting. We used to think about how challenging it was to save life. How do you save life? What cause do you donate to? Will I have this moment, if I'm a doctor, I'll have many moments perhaps, or someone, any type of medical professional, but will I have this rare moment as a soldier or as a bystander to pull someone from a car or from a fire? And today, the power to save, we are more powerless than ever and we're more powerful than ever. The power each of us has to save life, right? Um, through our basic practices, our basic responsibility of, of staying home or of wearing masks or of social distancing, the power that we have to save life. And the fact that God creates humanity through the power of breath, so too we can create humanity or save humanity through the power of our own breath as well. And so thank you for that, for that Michael. I think it's a, those are two really great, great points. Julie? Yes, hi, hi Mona. Mona. Hi. Um, I, I, this is fascinating. I'm thinking also, of, we're talking really about the ethics of shared air, shared breath. Um, I'd like to add to throw in also the, the, the issue of speech, because speech comes out of our mouth. Um, we have the airwaves. We pollute the airwaves. Um, you know, there's an ethics of what we put out into the air yes. in terms of speech that I just want to um, highlight as well. Oh, I love that. that, that that's a brilliant point. And um, we touched on this a few sessions ago in regards to the idea of uh, the rainbow, um, that the rainbow needs um, both the water 
and the rain, but also the observer. So too, the tree that falls in the forest needs the listener. Um, that there is no sound actually without uh, the ear, um, without the ear. And and here on this point of airwaves and the ethics of speech, um, there is this whole notion with lashon hara um, that you can never bring back what you've put into the airwaves. It, and the analogy given in the Talmud is, um, I don't know if it's a Talmud or if it's later, so excuse me, I think it's a Talmud, but I, I, I want to be sure if I'm going to say that, that because I don't know when pillows are invented uh, or modern pillows, but that there's a pillow, actually, it's probably a pretty ancient thing, but there's a pillow, uh, there's an interesting study, someone report back to us that when, it, when are pillows, modern pillows invented, um, that you, a pillow full of feathers is sent into the air and you can never recover all the feathers, they assume. I mean, I imagine you could. It's not so hard to find the feathers. But the feathers are sent into the air, and it, and it would be impossible to get all of those feathers back. Um, what, the, what we put out into the, into the airwaves, this is something, actually, that was the most instrumental Jewish idea in my journey. I thought of Judaism as, um, as out of touch and as uh, about big things but not little things. And then I read the Chafetz Chaim about the details, and perhaps he goes too far, as some of us have suggested, the details that are involved with how we think of the ethics of our speech. And, um, um, uh, and the details of, you know, I grew up with sticks and stones will break your bones, or don't say mean things to people, don't hurt people's feelings, but not really um, the intricacies of the, the power of how speech can be healing and destructive in relationships. Um, just look at a marriage, um, a marriage or a couple, the power of speech to lift someone up or to really uh, create harm in a way that uh, can never be forgotten, words that can never be forgotten, um, uh, as, um, or words that can truly nourish another um, in, in, in how we think of our speech empathically. Uh, and so thank you for that. The other thing I want to say there, which I have very little say, but I just want to raise the point. I don't know anything about the biology of the power of kissing, kissing in an intimate relationship, um, kissing a lip on a lip, um, a, t a tongue on a tongue, if it's going to be a really serious kiss in, in an intimate relationship. But the power of kissing, of sharing air in the most intimate way, um, there's something obviously sensational there biologically, but there's also something emotional there of, of um, beyond f uh, physiology of what happens in a kiss that, that we can meditate on more. Um, in the, the, <laughs> the deepest space of thinking about, about shared air uh, releases oxytocin. Lauren, thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. So some others here. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, if I could just, so going on from Lashon Ra, because I was thinking even before that, the Jewish to removing um, the chaff from the food, the good stuff. And in modern times now, even as much as what we speak, what we write, what we put on social media, um, there's, there's people have to be very careful what they read. There's a lot of false news, a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, there's so much stress about um, stars. Too, it, it's just, I think, really, really important. And I think we also have to try and push places mm. like Facebook mm. to remove the, the really awful racism, anti-Semitism, conspiracy theories. Thank you, Lauren. And if you'll, if you'll mute yourself again, we are only beginning to have an ethics of social media and an ethics of this new era of how we express ourselves 
Um, and going back to the tragedy of commons, you know, I think that um, the most common framework, tell me if you think I'm wrong, the most common framework for how social media is used is a, an expression of the self, a self-expression. And going back to the tragedy of commons, that the tragedy is um, that when um, thinking purely in the realm of self-interest, when it, it can be contrary to the common good of the collective. And so what if our primary framework that there may be spaces like therapy and intimate spaces um, uh, where we, or in prayer or the like, where we think purely about the expression of self. And then there might be other spaces where we think my speech is about common good. And how do I think empathically about the impact of my speech in such a space? Um, and so you're right, these airwaves, uh, it's crucial. And thank you for reporting back on pillows. Who was that, Craig? Okay, so for those who are interested here, the modern human device dates back to the civilizations of Mesopotamia, around 7,000 before Common Era, BCE. Okay, good. Only the wealthy use pillows. It, it's amazing the things that are so common today that, um, that we, uh, we don't think of as luxuries that were. Uh, like bathtubs when I lived in villages in Africa doing service work um, and we would get the water from the well and scream as we poured this freezing water on us uh, at night. Or as I mentioned last time, if you walk down the street in certain countries with a beverage, you are considered the most privileged, richest people because you would never buy a beverage, um, spend 50 cents on, 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 on a drink. Um, and so, yeah, so pillows, um, as it says here, were something for the elite. And there's a lot more to read there. Thank you. Okay, someone else, please. Rabbi Shmuley? Yes, hi, Leah. Leah, Leah yes, here. Hi. Um, I was thinking this week and last week as well, with separating the, the edible from the inedible, mm. of how many times we open a cellophane package mm. or a cardboard package, and maybe, um, maybe just on Shabbat to practice not mm. eating foods that come in a disposable mm package. Oh, Leah, that's so powerful. Thank you for that. You know, I was thinking about that yesterday because there was a reflection on how many years has it been since Al Gore chose Lieberman as his running mate? Uh, geez, I, I'm, uh, what year was that, someone? Uh, it should be so obvious. Was that in, uh, 2000. Thank you. 2000. Okay. That's why, that's why it came up because it was 20 years ago. Okay. So people were talking about how the first Jewish vice president, um, uh, vice presidential candidate was a part of it. And one of the reflections, which was so strange was, oh, this is a, this is a religious Jew, not just a Jew, but someone who's has a religious identity and commitment. And, and one of the first things they said was how the way that that was marked was there was cellophane everywhere. There was cellophane all over the place because they said, oh, on the, on the campaign, everywhere he goes, they got to have kosher food everywhere. And so there's going to be cellophane everywhere. Everything is right. They're going to wrap up the apple. You know, it's funny. I ordered kosher food on a Thailand flight once. I was volunteering in Thailand and I was on a, a Thai air or whatever the airline is over there. And they gave me an apple wrapped in cellophane as if that made it kosher. I'm like an apple in cellophane. Like, what the heck is this? You know what I mean, like you're, now here's your kosher apple, sir. It's kosher because there's cellophane on it. Right. And so your point is so interesting, this idea of separating the inedible from the edible and that in relationship to the amount of waste that goes in and the fact that kosher, the kosher, capitalistic enterprise has become associated with such massive amounts of waste to prevent contamination. And there's so much to say about that. But I think that's a really cool way to think of it, of how do we think about Shabbat being a practice as well 
about reducing that waste in regards to cellophane in particular. Um, and I think that that is really rich uh, because we do want to use less resources as part of the Shabbat experience. I mean, that's most certainly sustainability of self and of, of environment is a, is a crucial part of what Shabbat is about. And I love your extension here to, to Zoreh and to others as well. Next week, we're going to talk about Borer, Borer, which is about separating. And so we'll touch on that then as well. Thank you, Leah. Who else wants to share something? Yeah, Rabbi Shmuley, this is Alan Malk. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was listening with <clears throat> a great deal of interest about <clears throat> how certain words with someone might utter can be very hurtful, painful, and damaging. Yes. And uh, the power of, of the words we say mm -hmm. um, and you know, the immense impact it can have. At the same time, and I'm sure you, you, you either have or will touch on the power of an apology as well and how um, doing an apology when you've hurt somebody with your words or wronged somebody with your words, how um, powerful that can be in its own right. I remember attending a lecture on the art of an apology and they talk about the stages of actually saying, I'm sorry, seeing the other person sense your remorse, saying the words, how can I make it up to you, offering mm -hmm. something concrete, and then vowing to yourself not to repeat that behavior mm -hmm. that hurt that person. Mm -hmm. So, to be, you know, we're all human. We all say things we regret. We all uh, say things that are uncalled for. We all be known to say things that are unkind and cruel in a moment, often just in a moment of heated discussion or in a moment of anger or in a moment of disappointment. Um, but I, 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 I never cease to be amazed about how powerful uh, mm -hmm. a, a genuine apology can be and to create healing and, and mending the bridge. Totally, totally. And Dr. Molk, this is, a, this is really a wonderful time of year to be thinking about that. I mean, we should always be thinking about it, but entering Elul soon. Um, and sometimes we can forget this. We do this practice. Forgive me if you're someone who does this. I just can't stand it. That email to everyone in the world or post on Facebook, if I did anything to anyone, uh, forgive me. As if we, that's kind of an apology at all, you know? And I get that someone else might have another framework for how that makes sense to them. I, I, I don't understand it because I think what you're saying is exactly right. That the process of teshuva, the process of an, of of owning something we've done or said, of really working to repair it, of really naming it with someone, but not only naming it, as Rambam says, as Maimonides says, that teshuva really takes place when we're in the exact same situation we were in, and we don't choose to do that destructive thing or say that destructive thing. We're in the exact same moment, instead of it triggering us and us saying something mean-spirited, we are able to gain that control or, or shift what we want to say. And I think you're exactly right, that just as the power of speech uh, to destroy a relationship, to destroy a soul, um, um, it also has the power to heal, heal a relationship um, and heal people. Um, and, um, and that's why so much, of, uh, um, so much of the process of political healing as well has to involve this. Whether we're dealing with um, race in America and um, apologies for things that we have done or not done, whether we're talking about truth and reconciliation in South Africa, whether we are talking about, um, um, whether we are, are talking about naming things we are a part of that we are complicit in, 
um, even though it might be indirectly. I think this healing experience um, of even going back, and I've thought about this, there are, there are memories I have from childhood of, of things I would say to the overweight kid in class, things I would say to the Indian kid in class um, about how the Indian kids smelled. And, and I would like to think that these were typical things that you know, eight-year-old said to eight-year-olds, but I can't get them out of my soul. And I don't, and I don't know, like, is it better or worse to go back and find those kids um, that, you know, we made fun of um, and name that? Uh, we know we can go back <laughs> relatively recently and how healing it can be because the truth is the things that we think others forgot, they probably didn't forget um, oftentimes. But that's an interesting thing for us all to think about. Um, how can we in the coming month think about some spaces we might go back to to offer apologies. And again, the apology does not mean that we're solely to blame. Um, it might be that there was a conflict or a contentious space where multiple parties were at fault. And yet the apology is owning our portion of that. So thank you, Dr. Mulk, for that. I think that's, um, that that's really powerful. The other thing I'll say about that, um, um, yeah, Craig, thank you for that. In some cases, it is impossible. Actually, going back to the impossibility, the Talmud deals with the cases, uh, and even more recently, the case of how do you apologize to someone who's dead? And actually, it's quite intense. We have to bring a minion. We have to bring a minion to their grave. Um, now, I, I don't know so many people who have done that. If I recall correctly, Rabbi Dr. J.J. Schachter uh, brought a minion to, uh, I want to say a rabbi's name, but I'm only 80% sure it's him, so I'm not going to say his name, uh, brought, a, brought a minion to a, um, a famous rabbi's grave because he wrote something about him, uh, which was untrue, and he couldn't take back the scholarship. It was too far out there in the world. And so he took a minion to the guy's grave um, to, to, to have a formal process. And that's something to think about. I'll leave the question with you. Why do you have to bring a minion? Why can't you just do it privately? Um, but in cases where someone has passed away, how do you apologize to a parent who has died? My goodness, who doesn't owe an apology to their parents for the first five years of life, for our teen years, for the stress we gave them in our 20s? You know, I mean, everyone owes an apology to a parent. Um, and then not to mention the really extreme things that may, we might do to parents. Um, so how do, we, how do we do that? And that's really painful work, but really healing work. I'm, I just read a book of a guy who talks about a child that he abandoned that the woman he got pregnant um, showed up at his door with the five-day-year-old. Five and um, he, he said, I want nothing to do with it. And that kid showed up at his door again when he was 32. And he looked the kid in the eyes, the same kid who he saw five days old and walked away from the kid. And, um, and he was now ready to, to say, I'm sorry, in a way that was um, really healing to both. Of course, sorry is not enough. You know, we had a session yesterday around abuse what do you say if actually for some of the more extreme cases, someone sexually abused someone? So sorry is not going to be enough. Are you going to pay the, this rabbi yesterday said, are you going to pay their medical bills, the therapy bills, right? What are you going to do to take accountability with, along with your apology? Um, I, uh, um, you know, I remember, yeah, this is a really personal, embarrassing story, but I'll share it. Um, um, when I was in high school, we were at a high school party. And we were like pushing each other. And uh, someone uh, pushed me, but I was involved in the pushing where I, my, I, my side like bumped the wall. And this poor girl who hosted this party um, uh, now had this hole in her wall 
And I remember I was at an age where no way I could take responsibility for that. And I, and I lived with the guilt for years. And I think like five years ago, I found this young woman. I reached out to her and I'm like, can I pay for this wall? She's like, what wall? I don't even know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? But I was so, it was so uh, healing for me to be able to go back and talk about this wall with this young woman um, in a way that I'm sure I have countless things like that that I haven't even confronted yet. Um, but I think you're right, Dr. Mulk, that this... Um, this is one of the powers of our religion um, to think about not only how do we go forward, do we not make the damages that we made in the past, but how do we really go back and try to correct things? Some things we can never correct, but can we pick some little things where we can try to correct? Okay, let's, let, let's keep going here. Sorry for such a long-winded answer there. Can I jump in again? Please. Hi, Dr. Fishbane. Uh, um, I, um, I'm thinking about before apology comes guilt, and most yes. of us don't like yes. the feeling of guilt. I mean, yes. for me, I feel it right across my chest. It's a really yes. bad feeling. Yes. Um, and then I've wondered, like, why, why do we have this? What's the evolutionary purpose of it? Yes. And people have speculated that the evolutionary purpose of guilt is to lead us to repair and then to rejoin the group. Because in our early prehistory, if you were kicked out of the group because of your egregious behavior, you would die, right? You know, you needed the group to survive. So I, 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 I have tried in my own work to like re, um, re-honor guilt, <laughs> healthy guilt. Martin Buber differentiates between healthy guilt and, and neurotic guilt. And healthy okay. guilt is we've, we've injured the world order and the guilt to repair the world. Okay, great. Dr. Fishbane, if you wouldn't mind reflecting on the power of shame as well. Shame. Because I think guilt, I think you're exactly right, that religion goes sometimes the overboard. I mean, I don't want to pick on Christianity, but because everyone talks about Christianity and guilt, you know, but oftentimes we know how destructive religion can be when it infuses excessive amounts of guilt that are are morally and spiritually, psychologically paralyzing to people. But I think you're totally right on an evolutionary psychology basis. The power of guilt for us to repair our behavior in order to rejoin a group such that we have remorse and do the work to, 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 of repair. Of course, today we have the challenge where you can just community hop. You destroy your community relationship, so you, you hop onto the subway and, you know, one stop over. Or you, you pick a new shul to go pick on everyone and, and cause a whole lot of damage and then, and then leave. But shame, the flip side of guilt, is where, um, well, one component of shame, because it's so complicated, is where I seek to um, impose guilt upon someone else. I seek to shame someone for something, and I wonder how you understand that from the perspective of evolutionary psychology as, as, a, as a healthy dimension as well. So I'm thinking a lot about this. I'm actually in the middle of right, finishing an article on this topic. Awesome. And, um, just like I think Buber differentiates between healthy guilt and neurotic guilt, I think we need to differentiate between healthy shame and toxic shame. So if I shame someone else, or if I've been humiliated in my life by my parents or whatever, I often will carry a sense of toxic shame. Mm-hmm. But there is healthy shame, and our tradition talks about it. Bouchard is shame, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, for me, healthy shame is not acting according to my best self, my, my values. And I think we need to, mostly psychologists talk about shame in negative terms. Guilt, okay, fine, we'll tolerate guilt because it leads you to repair. But shame, no, 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 shame is all mm-hmm. bad. And mm-hmm. I think that we've short-shrifted shame and that there is a, 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 pow, a powerful, positive function of shame as long as it's not toxic. Yeah. and imposed on you. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for that. And just before I open it up, I'll reflect on, on that healthy sense of shame. Rabbi Yisrael Salantra, the founder of the Musar movement, believed that shame, um, I, you know, I can't say authoritatively that he thought it was the most powerful uh, vehicle for self-transformation, but he th- certainly thought it was one of the most. 
as such that um, the, the, the fear of shame and the avoidance of shame is so powerful that it will cause people to, to drastically change their, their behavior. And he even uses it as something that we should employ ourselves. He says, if you want to make a commitment to change, you should make your commitment public. Be, because you will be so afraid of being ashamed of not meeting that commitment. And so um, to use kind of a, a trivial example, um, someone wants to lose 20 pounds. What Rabbi Yisrael Salantra would say is publicly post on Facebook. In the next three months, I'm going to lose 20 pounds because um, he thinks that behaviorally that will be most if effective if we are held accountable by not wanting to live with the shame of not meeting our goal. Um, so you could decide if that's helpful for you or not. Um, but so too, and you can also tap into, is that true for you? How does the power of, of, of shame operate in terms of your life choices? Is that powerful or not? And are there some goals you're striving for where um, the power of shame actually is what it's at place? You don't want your children to view you as a fraud. You know, one, one rabbi explained to me um, the power of a phrase he calls um, sustainable hypocrisy sustainable hypocrisy. He says, if someone thinks you're a 10 out of 10, and you know you're only a 6 out of 10, you don't need to tell them you're a 6 out of 10. Let their perception of you being a 10 out of 10 help you to meet that goal, right? So, <laughs> such that, um, so too, I think my children are at the age right now where I think they're probably think I, I'm a better person than I maybe am because, you know, they're living within that you know, Freudian context of conflating me with God in some sense that I have more power than I actually have to do things in the world. And so sometimes I say, huh, if they think I'm someone who should be able to control anger or do great acts of kindness, like, let me try to meet that bar, you know, instead of just, you know, trying to um, crash their perspective right now that actually, no, I'm just like you. I'm totally as valuable as every other, every other person. Like, actually, if you're in the, if you're in the developmental stage where I am something more than just a, a typical value, valuable human, let me try to meet that bar a little bit, you know? So, okay, Brett. Um, uh, oh, yes. Guilt versus shame in Rabbi Sachs. Thank you for that. So this is, this is guilt culture versus shame cultures. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The shame culture is a whole nother topic over there. Yeah, and that's what Dr. Fishman's talking about here in terms of toxic shame, where suicide cultures, cultures where um, shame in it will um, commonly lead to suicide because um, you cannot re-enter. You can't re-enter society or, or your community in a healthy way. Um, and this is interesting also in regards to, if you were a part of this conversation yesterday, Craig, I know you, Craig Hibbs, I know you were there. Um, what do we do with extreme, um, uh, extremely inappropriate behavior? Let's take, once again, uh, sex abuse. How do we invite people guilty of sex abuse or people who are re-entering society after a felony back into our communities? Some people say you can't welcome them back um, because of the pain that gives victims. That's one answer. So others will say, hey, they served their time, let them fully re-enter. And then there's a middle ground of how do we hold that tension of keeping victims safe while also not shaming people because shaming uh, will be another vehicle towards uh, the high recidivism rate, uh, fostering that high recidivism rate where people can't re-enter society because of the power of shame. They're constantly remember, reminded of their felony. They can't, they can't get a job. They can't get an apartment. They can't get an aliyah in shul. And so how do we hold both that tension of, of holding people accountable for their actions, of protecting victims from those actions, but also moving beyond um, inappropriate behaviors that have existed um, where shame is not 
shame and guilt are not paralyzing. So we're, we've gone pretty far from winnowing here, um, but, <laughs> but someone else uh, in our remaining seven minutes, if you want to go back to something or, or continue where we are. Uh, yeah, Michael Evers had a question. Right. Shalom, shalom. Uh, it's not so much a question, just as like a comment. Right. Doesn't it kind of... So I'm thinking about the, the purpose of Zohre, right? Is to find for yourself usable materials, right? Is that, is, is that like a correct categorization? And I'm just asking for clarification because I have a second point of those. Yes, so, so there will be another process of Borer we'll talk about next week. And we had the process of threshing we recently talked about. But yes, this is part of that process of, of um, enabling the error or basically the wind um, to blow this lighter chaff from the heavier kernels such that it, it, there is some distance there from the inedible to the edible. Okay, so then if we're gonna talk about that in terms of, I guess, like where the conversation has turned, right? Towards like shame and guilt and all this, right? And uh, I think it was, I forget, I sorry, I forget your name, but you made the comment about how we go up to number 11 and we end up baking challah. There has to be something in, whether it's like shame or taking accountability for ourselves and our behavior, there has to be something involved in this process, it sounds like to me at least, that we are acting in a way to transform whatever it is we're finding. So in the shame or the guilt context, how do you welcome someone back in? It's like, let's be real here. Like you cause a lot of damage, you cause a lot of pain and you have on some level a very hurtful presence, right? So, you know, ultimately, right, the goal is to kind of see if you can get rid of the light stuff and you're stuck with like the heavy stuff that's going to go into the bread. But by the nature of what you're going to use it for, it's going to be used in hala. It's going to get transformed, but with the application of heat. Um, and I think the same, like I'm curious maybe then to just pick up the line about yes, right. the, the rough cook and the, the clapping, you know? But, okay. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, Michael. I don't cut you off. Yeah. No. No. Okay. I, so I love what you're saying. And, um, and this helps us to tie a few things that folks have been sharing together. If next week is bow rare and physically separating this week is using the air to make that separation. So going back to, to Dr. Fishman's point about healthy and toxic busha, healthy and toxic shame here, we're using the power of speech and the power of listening to separate out um, emotions. Because as we know in, in talk therapy, or I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way to talk about this, the, the, the process not merely of thinking about our emotions or writing about them, but talking through them in therapy or in, uh, in, in communication, allowing ourselves to speak and to listen and, and in order to separate out the, uh, these healthy and toxic emotions is a step before we get to the physical separations because the bow rare might be like, actually, now that we have shared that communication, I'm moving out and you're going to stay here. Separation or divorce can be a healthy process uh, at times and a necessary process. Or it might be that we're going to move closer. We're not going to separate. We're going to come closer. And so the bow rare conversation of what do we need to separate? What's the toxic thing that needs to be separated? Is it you? Is it you that needs to be separated from me? Or is it something in our relationship that has to be separated? And um, 
this is the talking, talking, listening phase. So it's interesting. If we viewed the whole 11 steps of making bread, baking bread as part of a, relation, a healthy relationship, um, and the process of that relationship of the gathering and the threshing and now the winnowing before we get to the separating, we could almost use that as a whole other paradigm for how we thought about the various steps of communication in thinking about gathering. Go, remember going back to, um, uh, to getting what's below the surface, gather the unconscious and bring it to the conscious level and then talking through that because talking makes it even more conscious and more understood. And now there's more understood. Let's think behaviorally about what needs to shift based upon our mutual understanding. So, um, so Michael, thank you for that, um, for that extension. Okay. Time for one more question or, or thought here. Okay, so um, the last point I'll make here um, is to think about this in terms of, um, as always, not just on the personal level, on the interpersonal or family level, and the communal level, but also on the American political level, <laughs> um, on the American uh, political level, of thinking about, um, about how we will, uh, once again, have some black and whites um, of the edible and the inedible. Um, that yes, there is an airspace, which is very complicated because we share that airspace and we have to figure out how to live together, even with the people um, who we feel are polluting our airspace, right? And yet in the same process, we are trying desperately to separate the chaff from the kernels. We don't want to eat the chaff. Um, we, <laughs> we want to use these kernels. And yet... Um, we are all interconnected in trying to do that. And so there is this process of thinking about a healthy discourse in American political life, which is so complicated because on the one hand, we have to speak truth to power. We have to have these black and whites on what is just and unjust, what is truth and what are, what are lies. And yet we also have to figure out how to hold this shared space of radically different media that we access, radically different language we're using to talk about the social evils of our time radically different ways that we understand the human predicament and, and the threats, um, uh, the threats. I mean, I was literally in a, in a, in a shop uh, on Sunday that had a hat that said, make liberals cry again. Um, these were hats, uh, make liberals cry again. And, and, it, and it's, it's not one way, but the fact that we have such an idea, we have such an idea that actually the goal is to make the opposition cry. I want Trumpers to cry. I want liberals to cry. We want the other side to like be in pain for what they've done. I want you to suffer through the consequence of what you, as opposed to going, going back to go, Dr. Mulk said earlier, Dr. Mulk said earlier, thinking about a healing process, about an, an apology process. What would it look like? Uh, again, I know this, this, this might not resonate at all for some. For us to go through a national healing process, not everyone will choose to be a part of this. There will always be those who can't do this. But a, a, an apology process to say like, whoa, if we really want to uh, heal this country, um, everyone's going to have some apologies involved here. We're all complicit in this culture, some more than others, to be sure. But we all have to be a part of this. So friends, I give you all the bracha that we should continue as we approach Elul to think about our own healing and our own healing together and our own process of, of uh, using less cellophane <laughs> and thinking about the interconnectivity of all life and of wind and of air um, and the power of God creating us through Ruach Elohim, through, through the power of this breath. 
and the, not only the sanctity that comes to that, but the great responsibility. Have a wonderful day. See you all again soon.